Uh, welcome. Really glad you're here. Uh, if you're visiting with us this morning, um, really glad that you are. Uh, and I need to just kind of say a few things to those in the room that might be exploring this church, exploring Jesus. Um, we have visitor cards in the back. When you walk in, we have visitor cards upstairs. Uh, we have an overflow room upstairs. Maybe there's some visitors in there. And here's what I, I hope you hear is that we would love for you to fill out a visitor card. We, we would love it. Um, but it's also okay if you don't. Because <laughs> um, I know what some of you are here exploring. And I know what some of you are here and what seasons you may be coming out of. And you just want a place to come to sit and be. You want a place to come and ask questions. You want a place to come and honestly just take for a while. Uh, maybe you've been mourning and weeping in this season and you need to just come and sit and be comforted. Uh, and maybe you've, you're sin sick and weary and you just need to come and experience the hug of Jesus here for a season. I don't know, but I want you to know it's okay just to come and be here for a little while. No one's gonna, no, no one asked you here for your money. Uh, that, that in the most beautiful way, um, it's okay uh, to not be needed here. Uh, you can just come and, and take from Jesus, take from this church um, here for a season, if that's what you need. And we would love for you to fill out a visitor card. Uh, but if you kind of want to put on the visitor card, please don't call me. Uh, that's okay too. <laughs> Boundaries are a great thing. Um, so you can come and just be here. Uh, and we would love that for uh, as long as you need to do that. So um, if you're visiting or if you haven't been with us, um, we are on our fourth week of a study of the book of Revelation. Um, and we are working our way through this book. Uh, you can throw, well, we have the sermon series slide uh, image up there. I think it's at the beginning, but we have um, a title for the series. We're calling it Reframing Reality because here's what Revelation does. It is not an end times prediction book. It's not what Revelation is. Revelation was an apocalyptic letter written to actual churches that needed courage, needed comfort. They needed to be woken up. They needed to know what reality was even if they couldn't see all of reality. So Revelation, each week, kind of each section on the crazy apocalyptic journey that it's going to take us through, it is trying to reframe our reality and reframe our ability to see reality uh, in 22 chapters. We're looking at it a couple different themes at a time, looking at these themes that it presents to us as reality that we can't always see. And we're trying to spend a couple weeks kind of in each section that we uh, are, are looking at. So this little section we're in right now, if you haven't been with us, is the section of the, of the letter where Jesus actually addresses the actual seven churches that, that he's writing to, that John is writing to, the real people on the other side of this letter. And he walks through these churches and he has something to say to each of them. And right before he addresses all of them, he says, uh, the lampstand, he says, I am among the lampstands and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And it's just kind of crazy analogy and what does that mean? Really what Jesus is saying though is the lampstands represent my churches and I'm among them. Here's what Jesus is saying. I'm among my churches. That's where I am. That's where I work. That's where I dwell. I inhabit the praises of my people. I dwell with them and in them. I am in my people and with my people. So this little two-week section we're calling the presence of Jesus. Where is he? Where does he work? And he's going after the heart of his churches. This is Chapters two through three in the, in the book of Revelation, he addresses seven churches. Chapter four, we peaked at last week as an intro, or two weeks ago as an intro. Chapter four really begins the apocalypse, the vision that John's gonna be kind of taken to another dimension to see. Uh, and so, but right now, before we get to the actual vision, the actual apocalypse, uh, we're looking at just what does he have to say to the churches that need to see the vision? What does he have to say to them before he reveals to them uh, the apocalypse? So, that was a long intro. Here's where we are. 
Last week, Daryl looked at the letter to the church at Pergamum. Uh, and what Jesus will do when he addresses churches is he has really specific things to say to that church. And typically in the seven letters to the seven churches, six of the letters, Jesus um, gives some really good feedback. Hey, y'all are doing some things that are great. And here's some things that we need to address and look at. On the seventh letter, uh, the letter to the church at Laodicea, Jesus has nothing good to say. <laughs> he doesn't say one good thing. And what most modern commentators would say, and this is where it's like, tough room, is this, is this criticism that the letter to the church at Laodicea is the closest thing that if Jesus were writing letters to the churches today, the church at Laodicea would be the church in America. Like this, this is the closest church to us. Now that we can relate to all of them, but this is the one where he has some things to say to the church. Um, so if you're visiting, we'll see you later, okay? <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Um, so here we go. The church at Laodicea, where he has nothing good to say. Let's see what he does say to them. Revelation chapter three, it's the very end of chapter three, starting in verse 14, says this. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm neither and neither cold nor not hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness that may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to eat, to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. It's the word of the Lord. Amen. Laodicea. It's a prominent Asia Minor town near the town of Colossae, which received the letter to the Colossians earlier in the New Testament. It's probably the best or most well-known of the seven letters because it has the phrase in there that you've maybe heard or you heard it at VBS or it's used at kind of evangelistic crusades from time to time is where Jesus says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. And those words get used as Jesus' kind of plea to the unbelieving world, behold, I stand at the door and knock. Uh, I'm, I'm coming to you. Would, you. would you let me into your heart? And all those are, are, are fine. It, it's just a little taken out of context that when it gets used as this evangelistic to the unbelieving world phrase, it takes it out of context because please note, Jesus does not say, behold, I stand at the door and knock to an unbelieving or a pre-believing people. He says it to a church. He says it to people who profess to already believe in him. He says it to people who have already confessed him as Lord and Savior. He says it to people who believe that he is the resurrection of the dead. He says it to people who are orthodox believers. And he says, behold, I stand at the door and knock, implying you have this confessional community where you believe all these true things about me, but hey, if you want to know reality, I'm actually on the outside of your building. I'm not in with you. You think I'm with you because of what you're saying you believe, but I'm not in with you. 
to a church, Jesus is saying, I'm actually on the outside of you, even though you say you believe in me. What does he have to say to them? Well, he starts with a symptom. He starts with a fruit, right? So he starts with this external experience that he's noticing about the church. He's telling them about their kind of existential reality and how they're living. And he'll take us deeper into the heart in a minute, but first he starts with just their experience and their symptom of their condition. The symptom of what their life is producing, he says in verse 15 and 16. Will, you can throw this back up. Verse 15, he says, I know your works and you are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So... Because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Lukewarm. That's their symptom. That's this church's experience. The people of Laodicea would have instantly gotten this analogy because in their town, there was a hot spring up the river just a little bit that flowed hot water into their town. And if they could capture the hot water before it got there, they could use it for certain medicinal purposes and cooking. And they had, they had a use for the hot spring water. And then on the other side, Laodicea was kind of in this valley. The other water source that flowed into their town was cold, fresh water from the hills. And so those two sources flowed into this valley, but the water in Laodicea itself was lukewarm. They couldn't use it. It was pointless. It was, in a lot of ways, worthless. Jesus says, you know how worthless something that's lukewarm is. That's what I'm saying to you. You are lukewarm. You're neither hot nor cold. They had no conviction. They were tepid. They were half-hearted, always ready to compromise. They were seemingly indifferent about their faith and their faith being expressed and lived and embodied, but they would have said to you, if you would ask them, you, you would have loved the people from Laodicea. They weren't jerks. Jesus doesn't go after their morality. He doesn't go after their, their sexual deviancy. He doesn't go after their greed. These are good people. These are like people who you would want to be neighbors with. These are people who like raise their kids the right way. These are people who they, they're not, they're not uh, overtly evil on the outside. They're, they're doing all the right stuff. They confess to know who Jesus is, but then in, in this exposure of them, this diagnosis of them, he says, but it doesn't mean anything to you. You're a good person. We're all good down here in Laodicea land. Like we just, we, yeah, we confess Jesus and we all live good lives and everything's good. In verse 19, later on, we'll get to this, but in verse 19, when he's calling them back to reality, back to sanity, he says, would that you be zealous which zealousness, zeal, is the opposite of lukewarmness. He's saying, you have no, you have no passion. You have no desire. You have, no, you have none of it. None of this confessed Christianity means anything for your actual life. You're believing all the things you should believe. You're doing all the things you should do. Your morality is scoring an A+. But nothing's going on in here. You have a hollow Christianity. It doesn't actually move you. It doesn't change you. You're not excited about it. It doesn't electrify you. You have no zeal when it comes to the things of God. Jesus is saying the supreme passion of your heart, your highest love has been set on something besides me. And so because of that, you have disordered loves and it's made you lukewarm in your living. There's no intimacy, there's no passion, there's no joy, there's no wonder about the mystery of faith of walking with Jesus. There's none of it. 
Look at what Jesus says about that reality in verse 16. This is how Jesus experiences lukewarm Christians. Verse 16, so because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. The literal translation of that, that verb for spit, is actually the same Greek word for vomit. I will vomit you out of my mouth. It's nauseating to Jesus. It disgusts him. Lukewarm Christians make Jesus sick. It's literally what this is saying. So I was at a potluck-ish Thanksgiving several years ago. My wife's lovely grandfather, who's no longer with us, patriarch of a man, would always invite someone who needed to be at Thanksgiving to our big, the big family gathering at Thanksgiving. People who just got out of jail, didn't have anywhere to go. One year, uh, a woman who was going through a separation, a marriage separation, she was in her 60s, uh, was going through a marriage separation season. He invited her to come eat Thanksgiving with us. It was precious. It was great. She felt the need to bring a dish, okay? Uh, I was trying to remember, when was the last time I wanted to vomit something out of my mouth, okay? Because this lovely lady... <laughs> I'm you, like, you're going to think I'm joking. We thought she was joking. She wasn't joking. Uh, her dish to share with all 50 of us uh, was tuna jello. Yeah, I know. And it was the clear jello. She didn't even use the, the food coloring. It was just like, <laughs> it was just tuna, canned tuna in clear gelatin. And she was so glad to be at dinner. She was going around making sure everyone got a bite of her. Do you like it? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it was like, I want to vomit this out of my mouth. Now, her marriage was restored. So I tend to think that me eating the tuna jello had a little part to play in that. So, but it was, it was, it was like, okay, when have I felt like I can't swallow this because I might die if I do? Uh, tuna jello. Now, at the, at the risk of being sacrilegious, um, Jesus would equate lukewarmness with tuna jello. Like that's how he feels about it. I, I cannot stomach this. I, it, it, it will not go down. The feeling that's described of Jesus here is the only place in scripture where this feeling is ascribed to him. We do not read that he is grieved with them. We do not read that he is angry with them. He's not even even necessarily calling out some of their external actions of sin or disobedience. But what we read about them being lukewarm towards Jesus is that he's disgusted with them. And not just slightly disgusted, but like thoroughly nauseated. Because he knows their entire religion is a sham. It's pretense. They're, they're just using Christianity to add on to their buffet life where they can, I wanna, I wanna be in this workout class and I wanna score this promotion and I wanna make this tax bracket and I wanna have these kids that dress this way that go to these schools where my life ends up looking great and sure, I'll tack on Jesus. That gets me something in the life that I want to have. They have these confessed beliefs about Jesus and it doesn't do anything for their hearts or lives. It doesn't mean anything to them. They have no passion, no intimacy with Jesus, nothing that they actually care about. And the Lord says, I want to vomit you out. Have you ever thought of Jesus, precious, wonderful, amazing Jesus, being disgusted by something? He's nauseated by lukewarmness. And maybe 
the way that this would be written to us today, the thing that is the, is the comparison for us today, is that Jesus is nauseated by people who are nominally Christian, but their heart's affections are nowhere to be found. He's nauseated by people who confess to know Jesus, but their Christianity is hollow. Their, their Christianity doesn't mean anything for them. It doesn't change the way they see this city. It doesn't change the way they see their spouse. It doesn't change the way they see their hearts and their passions and their self-discovery and their joy. It doesn't change who they vote for. It doesn't change what they want to see happen, shalom and justice and mercy flowing into this city. It doesn't change any of that for them. It doesn't change their passions or their care. It doesn't change how they live. They're just, just good people in Laodicea, Nashville. There's good people that love to confess with their mouths that they believe in Jesus, but their hearts are far from him. Now look, you might think like, whoa, preacher man, back off. And you know, we're, we're, we're trying. Look, I'm with you. Do you know how many times I've wondered that if I didn't get paid for this, would I actually care about any of this? Would I actually be an incredibly lukewarm Christian if I wasn't getting a paycheck to be a professional Christian? Like it's terrifying to think about what does this actually change about my life? And if this wasn't my job, would it change anything about my life? And Jesus says, that makes me sick. So how did they get there? what, What made them passionless people? What's going on underneath the Laodiceans' lives that would, that would actually cause them to have lukewarm living? What's going on at the heart level, the deeper level, the soul level? And how could one be woken up out of it? Well, the deeper issue, the heart condition that produces passionless living is in the text too. Jesus quotes, Jesus is going to say himself what the Laodiceans say about themselves. Jesus is kind of using their own words against them. Look at what he says in verse 17. This is how they self-describe. For you say, Laodiceans, I'm rich, I've prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I'm rich, I've prospered, and I need nothing. Laodicea, the town, the city, was famous for three things. We know this from lots of historical sources. Laodicea had many banks and they were all solvent. It was an incredibly wealthy town. Here's how wealthy they were. In AD 60, there was an earthquake that toppled the whole town of Laodicea and all their buildings were destroyed. And the Roman government, knowing what a, what a key economic city Laodicea was and it needed the, the infrastructure, it needed to be rebuilt, the Roman government offered to send financial aid Rome said, let us rebuild your city for you. You don't have to pay for it. And Laodicea said, we got it. We have all the money we need. Rome, no thanks. We actually don't need your money. We can rebuild ourselves. Second, Laodicea was famous for its clothing industry. It was especially known for this glossy wool that they would weave together from nearby sheep that were breeded there. The garments, the clothing garments made in Laodicea were exported literally all over the known world. Everybody wanted to dress like they dressed in Laodicea. And other historical sources would say that Laodicea was the best dressed city in the entire Roman Empire. Third, so they're wealthy, very well clothed. And third, they were famous for their medical school. 
So they had this medical school where they had this technology that they had developed to actually develop an eye salve that they used from the hot spring. They used water source from the hot spring and they would develop this eye salve that could heal weak and failing eyes. It would restore people headed towards blindness. And Laodicea was the training center for this medical school where people from all over the world would travel to get trained here. Okay, so let's summarize this. Wealthy, clothing, which means the image of Laodicea was that everyone wanted to look like someone who lived in Laodicea. There was a, it was a medical center. Other cities were jealous of them because of their notoriety and what was going on in Laodicea. People would move to Laodicea to, to get some of the glory of the train of Laodicea so that they could hop on it and become something themselves. There were medical schools. There was medical notoriety. There were booming industries that sustained the town. Are we talking about Nashville or Laodicea? <laughs> they had it all. They had everything they needed to make it on their own so that the unofficial motto of the city, Jesus uses this in his language to them is at the end of verse 17, you say, I am rich, I have prospered and I, this was their motto, I need nothing. They were proud of it. And so here's the connection point between lukewarm, passionless living and this reality of I need nothing. Here's what Jesus is going after. The fastest track to a shut down heart is becoming self-sufficient. The fastest track to having no passion or zeal, the fastest track of being out of touch with your longings and your heart's emotional state is being committed to being self-sufficient. You, you can go on the journey of being self-sufficient and there is a direct correlation to you becoming self-sufficient and saying about yourself, I need nothing. And every step you take in the self-sufficiency direction will shut down your heart. That's what Jesus is saying. They say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing. Anyone in this town saying those things? I'm rich, I've prospered, I need nothing. Anyone in this town rich? There's, I've said this before, there's people in this room that could pay everybody's mortgage today. And I'd love to meet you. <laughs> Have you driven anywhere in this town? Is this town rich? Is this town prospering? Anyone in this town give off the appearance that they need nothing. And maybe what's more exposing for all of us that love to throw stones at those people, but really were jealous of those people is Anyone in this room hoping they can one day say those things about themselves? Because if we're honest, what we really want is I, I would love to cross the finish line of arrival and I finally arrived. I don't need anything anymore. I find, I find my spiritual growth has arrived. My financial situation has arrived. I'm hoping I can one day get to the point where I don't need anything. I would love that. And even if we have had seasons of being able to say that, I really don't, I really don't need anything right now. Really then the, the pressure becomes, well, then I have to keep saying that. I have to build my life so self-sufficiently that I can keep saying I don't need anything. And here's what happens. We actually get trapped in our self-sufficiency. It's like an addiction. We can't get out of our self-sufficiency. We're enslaved to it. The problem is we're the ones that locked the door. It's self-sufficiency. This wasn't done to us. 
We're our own jailers. We're our own harsh taskmasters on the path to self-sufficiency. So would you dare to be honest enough this morning and admit that just about everything you do in your life is an attempt to not need anything anymore? I would love to rid myself of need. I would love to have arrived. I would love for my marriage to not need anything. I would love for my spiritual growth to not need anything. I would love for my finances to not need anything. I would love for my family system to not need anything. I would love for my vocational trajectory to not need anything. I don't wanna need anything. And I'm working, I'm building a life in hopes that I finally do something and cross some line where then I can talk like the Laodiceans. I don't need anything. And it disgusts Jesus. It makes Jesus sick. Jesus is saying here there's a direct link to being wealthy, being brilliant, being beautiful, being accomplished, being high achieving, and spiritual lukewarmness. Why? Why is there a connection between all those things, I'm rich, I have prospered, I need nothing, and spiritual lukewarmness? Because when you're really brilliant and you're really beautiful and you're really accomplished and everybody wants to be like you and you're making a lot of money and you're on top of your world, you may say this with your mouth, I oh, mean, I know I'm a sinner, I know I need Jesus, but you don't actually believe it. it does, that, that statement doesn't actually move you. It doesn't actually stir anything in you. So the knowledge that Jesus loves you and is crazy about you doesn't seem like a miracle to you. You believe, we believe, of course Jesus loves me. I'm pretty good. I've put my life together. I would love me. Doesn't he love me? The knowledge of Jesus' love for you doesn't electrify you. It doesn't move you to tears to ponder it. It doesn't wake you up in the morning and grip you. Yes, you believe you're a sinner, but you don't feel like it. If someone asked you to name ways, if that's true, how have you sinned in the last 24 hours, you might have a hard time identifying it. Because I work my whole life to avoid sin so that I can avoid Jesus. And so when it comes to the things of Jesus, you're functionally lukewarm. This is one of the ways that the watching world looks at the church and they actually are disgusted by the church because they see these people who claim to believe these things, but it doesn't actually change anything about their life. And so it's not just the hypocrisy, it's the hollowness of it. Like the, the watching world can't compute, like what you say you believe, you, you care about justice for the poor, you say you care about loving your neighbor, you say you care about sacrificial living, you say you care about actually wanting to change the world and bring flourishing to everybody, but nothing's happening. The church, the church to the outside world, the world's going, this doesn't make any sense to me because they don't see a people who are consumed by Jesus. They don't see a people who are exploding in their hearts for Jesus. And here's maybe the only place where Jesus would come alongside those outside the church and put his arm around them and say, it disgusts you, it disgusts me too. Like this is maybe the only place that Jesus agrees with the unbelieving world about the thoughts on the church. So let's pray and go home. No, I'm kidding. So what's the, what's, what's the remedy? What, what do we do about this? How can people move from nauseating lukewarmness to a heart that's beating and a heart that's alive and full of zeal? The only thing that can wake a dead heart 
is to lose one's self-sufficiency. Which means what you need to do in order to leave your lukewarm living is actually do nothing. Because if you could do it, then you would go do it and you'd be self-sufficient in that too. It's actually incredibly counterintuitive to repent and believe the gospel admitting you can't do anything about it. Look at what Jesus says in verse 18. This is how he's wooing them back to himself to try to wake their hearts up. Look at what he says in verse 18. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Do you see how like each of those places is places that they would have already been very self-sufficient in? And Jesus is saying, buy those things from me. You think you're rich, but you need my gold. You think you're well clothed, but you need my white garments. You think you can help others see, but I actually need to help you see. And when he says, get from me, get from me, it's a really important phrase. Because remember the earthquake? The earthquake was like 20 years before this letter was written. Remember the earthquake that they were offered aid from Rome and they said, no, we got it. We're good. We don't need anybody's help. They believe they didn't need anything from anybody. And Jesus says, actually, you do. Everything you think your self-sufficiency is giving you, you actually have to get from me. And so he says, come and buy from me. Buy from me these things. Spiritually, gold from Jesus, gold from the Lord represents this image of stability, security. You'll have everything you need when, when you have needs. Everything will be taken care of. There's a, there's a status of a secure life in the gold from Jesus. A white robe from Jesus symbolically represents white robes all throughout scripture is the pure righteousness of an unstained garment. Pure righteousness, no stain of sin on it. And Jesus is saying, I know you make fancy clothes for everybody else. You actually need my clothing to cover you. It's pure pardon. It's pure forgiveness. It's a declaration of righteousness that you didn't do anything for. And then when he says you need spiritual eye salve, he's saying, you think you can help everyone else see reality. And I'm saying you need my salve if you're going to see reality. And Jesus is saying, you're trying to get all those things from other places, but you have to buy it from me. And then get this call to worship that we were called into a little bit ago, call to worship from Isaiah 55. Listen to Isaiah 55, one. Will we go back and find this? Chop, chop, Will, thanks. Here we go. Isaiah 55, one says this. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come by and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Here's what it's like to buy from Jesus. When you go and buy from Jesus, he doesn't charge you because he's already paid for it. He throws a party and there's an open bar tab and all the drinks are on him. He's already paid for it. And he does this for people who at the same time make him nauseous. You're who he wants at the party. He wants to clothe you. He wants to give you his gold. He wants to give you his salve, even though at the very same time you make him sick. Do you know that he's the only person in the universe that can hold both of those things at the same time? He offers you to take everything from him 
and he won't charge you because he's already charged himself. He was stripped naked so you could be clothed. He was impoverished so you could be rich. He was blinded so you could see. Why would he do that? Why, do, why does he do that? Why does he offer that free gift, come and buy from me and I won't even charge you to people that repulse him? Well, there may be nothing more wonderful in the entire Bible than this, that to these lukewarm people with whom he is so thoroughly and understandably disgusted that he now addresses himself to those same people in these ways. Look at verse 19. Look at how he he starts calling to them. To those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. To those whom I love, I stand at the door and knock. And actually, if you want to get really technical about the Greek verbiage, the the language that the New Testament was written in, the word there that says, behold, I stand at the door and knock, the way that that phrase is actually being said by Jesus is that he's not so much kind of standing back like this, I give you a couple knocks and give you 38 seconds to get to the door, I'm out of here. No, it's actually better translated, behold, I'm standing and leaning against the door and I'm continually knocking. Like a jealous lover leaning against the door, knowing that the one whom he loves is in the arms of another on the other side of the wall. Getting their gold from other lovers, he knocks against the door and he pleads with them. He's leaning, he's leaning against the door. He's banging on it saying, let me in, let me in. I love you. Let, you don't have to go get gold from these other places. And then the verb would suggest he doesn't knock once and leave. It's a continual action verb, which means it's a continual knocking. Not once, but again and again and again and again. And while he's knocking, he's calling out to you which means you didn't call out to him first. He calls to you before you call to him. He's the one that moves first. He's the one that comes even though you didn't ask him to come. It's him who knocks, it's him who calls, it's him who shows up at your door to offer you gold and garments and healing. Jesus comes to find you. If you were here a few weeks ago, we looked at um, Revelation, the book, and it's, allegories and metaphors and its images that it uses. And we talked about how there's over a thousand cross-references in the book of Revelation to other parts of the Bible. Cross-references like a hyperlink that you would click and it would take you somewhere else in scripture to get a full picture of it. So Jesus here in this phrase, he actually plucks something out of an Old Testament book, the Old Testament romance poem called Song of Solomon. Jesus plucks a phrase out of that poem Song of Solomon, and he applies it to himself, what he says to the church at Laodicea. This is the text that he is using for himself to describe how he is pursuing the lukewarm church. Song of Solomon 5.2, I'll throw it on the screen for you. Will, will. I slept, but my heart was awake. A sound, my beloved is knocking. And then listen to what the, listen to what the beloved on the other side says. Open to me, my darling, my love, my dove, my perfect one. 
My beloved is knocking. Open to me, my darling. Here's the question to spark your lukewarmness alive. Do you need that love? Does it call to you? Does any part of that kind of lover speak to the deepest places in you that after all your hands have done, a lover would still stand at the door and knock begging to come in to embrace you? Do you need gold? Do you need garments? Do you need salve? Jesus says, come and buy from me and I won't charge you. If you need that love, if that calls to you, if that wakes you out of your slumber like this one on the other side of the door, I slept but my heart, my heart was awake. If that's you, here's all you have to say. Literally, it's not more complicated than this. Lord, I need you. That's it. It's a confession of need. That's actually how you open the door. If you can't confess that you need him, Jesus will keep knocking but your self-sufficiency will make you deaf. Your commitment to self-sufficiency won't let you hear the door. But if you know the one, the very one that you have understandably offended, understandably offended to the degree that he actually wants to spit you out is the same one who says to you, open to me, my beloved. Then your lukewarm heart will be set on fire. Let's pray. Jesus, you stand at the door and knock for your church, for your bride. Your bride's on the other side of that door, Jesus. The one you love from heaven, you came and sought her and you're pleading with her to wake up, to open the door. You're leaning against the door. And so I pray in this next few minutes as we sing and come to communion, that we would hear Jesus knocking. We would hear by the heart of faith you call to us to come and buy from you gold and garments and salve. Would we dare to open the door knowing that when you open it, you don't charge us a thing? Meet with us now in this time and this place. We ask Jesus in your name. Amen.